Uh, let me uh, add my own welcome to that of uh, Joe's earlier in the service. My name is Paul Williams, I'm the vicar here, and uh, I'd encourage you, if you have access to a Bible, to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, uh, the reading that we had earlier, well in, indeed the creed that we read earlier, uh, page 1182 is the page number, and if you can't find a Bible, uh, well do have the, uh, the creed open, uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, which is where we'll be looking uh, at this evening. We've uh, rightly mentioned uh, much about uh, David Hopkinson's tragic death uh, already in this service and uh, we have acknowledged that his death has rocked uh, family, uh, friends, uh, many in this church family. But as I sat with uh, David's family through these terrible last days, there's been one thing um, that they have continued to hold on to, that David as a believer in Christ is secure See, this week, if we needed any reminder, we saw why the gospel really matters. And this week, if we needed any reminder, we saw why Jesus is everything. Just ask the Hopkinson family, this week more than ever, they know that nothing else matters. They know that Jesus is everything. There is nowhere else to go except to Jesus. There is no one else to help except Jesus. There is no hope except the hope that is in Jesus. And amazingly, that is what this passage in Colossians chapter 1 is all about, that we chose weeks ago to preach on this evening. You'll perhaps remember what we saw as we studied this book last week, if you were here. There were people in the church in Colossae tempting the Christians there to turn to other things to turn to other things other than Jesus, to give them a a further experience of God. It wasn't that they were saying, don't follow Jesus. They were just saying, that's a good start, but there's other things to take you further. Look at chapter 2, verse 4, if you've got a Bible open in front of you. Here's what made Paul, the Apostle Paul, put pen to paper. Chapter 2, verse 4, I tell you this, all that he's been writing so so far, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. You see, there were people among them in this church who spoke some amazing things, some remarkable claims, who gave some astonishing promises. All that they said sounded conceivable, believable, exceptional. These deceivers could talk the talk. But their words were very dangerous because their words led people astray. I hadn't long passed my driving test when I was hopelessly lost, uh, fairly late at night in a village that I'd never been in before. It was dark and uh, the windows uh, on the, um, uh, on the uh, car were steaming up, probably because I was getting steamed up. After driving around aimlessly for quite a while, I saw a couple of guys about my age walking along the side of the road and so I asked them for directions to my friend's house. Yep, we know exactly where it is, they said confidently. Uh, Turn around and then head in this direction, take the first right, the second left and the first right after that. I mean, whenever I've asked people for directions, it's always been far more complicated than that. I was thrilled. I can remember that first right, second left, first right. And so I followed their their directions. And uh, I found myself driving down a very narrow, bumpy lane with no streetlights 
to make it worse, the windscreen was misting up and, uh, and I could barely see where I was going. And so I was inching my way along this bumpy road and after about half a mile, I convinced myself that it must be the wrong road. And when I saw an open gate on the side of the road, I reversed into the drive so that I could turn around. Eventually, I found my way to my friend's house. As it turns out, I should have taken the first right, the third left and the first right. The guys that were directing me hadn't accounted for that little narrow track that I went down. I considered that to be the second left. Well, it didn't bother me at all until I went for a walk with my friend the next day. We walked down the same muddy track that I'd been driving down the night before. As we reached the gate that I'd turned round in, I recognised that this was the lane that I was lost on the night before. Until then, I hadn't realised. And I told my friend, oh, this is where I turned round. And he looked at me and he said to me, well, it's just as well you did turn round. And he walked on with me about 100 yards further to the end of the road and to a drop about 15 or 20 feet down. See, they were only words, first right, second left, first right. And those words were almost correct. Very close to the truth. I don't even think those people were trying to deceive me. But those words led me to real danger. And that is why these deceivers in Colossae were so dangerous. They may well have been sincere about what they said. They may well have really believed it, but they were leading people to real danger because Jesus is the only way to God. There is no other way. And so to know God is the most important thing I can know. And they were not leading people to him. Now we again have felt the strength of that this week, haven't we? That to know God is the most important thing that you and I can ever know. But these deceivers in Colossae were leading people away from God. Look at chapter 2, verse 18, if you've got your Bible open. Paul writes this, because this is what was going on. He says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen. And his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. The deceivers in Colossae wouldn't have denied that Jesus was important. No, no, no. But they did point people towards something else, something other than Jesus. See verse 18, the deceivers in Colossae went into great detail about what they'd seen. All these spiritual experiences that they'd had. They spoke, chapter 2, verse 18, about the worship of angels. Their words would have sounded so impressive. People like them exist in the churches today. I I saw it first some years ago in a previous church I was involved in. A guy in his early 20s came back from a Christian camp. And when he came back, he was really pumped up. He started to tell others in the congregation about the events of his time away. He'd had visions and experiences that had blown his mind away. And the astonishing thing was, as the weeks rolled on, it became clear those experiences became everything to him. Ask him about Jesus, he wouldn't deny Jesus explicitly, but in time it became clear that his experience became the most important thing. That was what kept him going, and that was what he wanted everyone else to have. It was so subtle and that is why it was so deceptive. Jesus was no longer everything to him. 
because he believed that this other experience was what really got him deep into God. Now, apart from the effect it had on him, it left other people in the church feeling vulnerable and insecure, wondering if they had the real thing. Again, this week, have we not seen how important it is to know that we have the real thing? It makes all the difference in the world knowing you've got the real gospel, the gospel of life and of hope, the gospel of resurrection beyond the grave. Now we saw last week what was happening in Colossae then. The deceivers in Colossae had left the Christians needing reassurance and Paul gave them that in the opening verses of this letter. He reassured the Christians in Colossae that they were real Christians. Now as we turn to Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 20, Paul tells the Colossians why they don't need anything else other than Jesus. He tells them if you have Jesus you have everything. Everything that you need for knowing God. And again, we know how important that is after the events of this week. Well, if you're taking notes, here's your first heading. The supremacy of Christ in creation, verses 15 to 17. Let me read them again. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. These verses are completely mind-blowing. They will expand your mind to how big Jesus is. As we look at these verses, I want, to ask, or I want you to ask yourself, how big is my understanding of Jesus? And then in view of all that we see here, to ask, why would I want to go to anyone else or anything else other than Jesus? See, Paul begins, verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the visible form of the invisible God. The point is this, Jesus is the only point at which the unknown God can be known. He is invisible. You can't know God, except through Jesus. The deceivers in Colossae were trying to take people into other things, uh, other things other than Jesus for a further experience of God. Paul says no. God is invisible. He cannot be known except through Jesus. If you want to know God, then your first and last word must be Jesus. And then Paul adds in verse 15 that Jesus, do you see it there, is the firstborn over all creation. There is huge misunderstanding about this word firstborn. If you've ever had the Jehovah Witnesses knock on your door, you may well have found yourself, if you get into discussion with them, discussing this verse. They say this proves that Jesus isn't equal with God the Father. They will say he is a God, but not God, not supremely God. Not like God the Father. Jehovah, as they say. They say this proves that Jesus was born, that he was the first created thing in the universe. But listen, that is not what the firstborn means in the Bible. All the way through the Bible, look back to the book of Genesis and you'll see that the firstborn gave you the inheritance rights. Think of the story between the twins, Jacob and Esau. It's all about who was the firstborn, who got the inheritance. This is saying Jesus is the firstborn, he gets the inheritance, he is the heir. He is the firstborn, it says in verse 15, over all creation. 
He will inherit the whole creation. That's the point. And the next verse tells us why. Notice the little word there at the beginning of verse 16, the word for. Jesus is the firstborn over over all creation, for, verse 16, by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Here's why Jesus is the firstborn, why he will inherit everything. First, because Jesus made everything. Have you got that? Jesus made everything. This verse is so completely all-encompassing. Do you see it there? Jesus created the world and everything in it. He created the universe and everything in it. He created the heavenly realms and everything in it. He created things we can see and things we can't see. Nothing, nothing existed before Jesus, this says. Mind-blowing, isn't it? I have a friend who's, a, who's Jewish. We, we talk about the Bible from time to time, usually the Old Testament. I talk about his scriptures. Now, he's never said this to me, but I could well imagine someone with a Jewish background saying, why all this talk about Jesus? The world existed perfectly well before him, didn't it? No, says Paul. There was no B.C., Christ existed long before he became one of us, long before he was born to the Virgin Mary. He created everything. Everything. Oh, we went skiing last year. We had a fantastic uh, time. Great weather, blue skies, deep snow. It was perfect. As I stood at the top of the mountain range in Valterens, it hit me just how huge the world is. I looked across the valley and saw hundreds of little skiers going down the mountainside like little ants. If you've ever skied, you'll know what I saw. The mountain they were on was huge. And I thought to myself, this is just one mountain in a huge mountain range, which is just one valley in France, a small part of Europe, a little continent on planet Earth, just one small planet in this vast universe. The sheer size of the creation astonishes me. And then as I'm standing there thinking these thoughts, I consider the detail of it all. Every snowflake different. Jesus made it all. Listen to these figures. There are apparently 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Our sun is 150 trillion miles from the centre of our galaxy. Our galaxy is just one of a cluster of 30 galaxies. Altogether, it is estimated that there are over 100 billion galaxies and each galaxy has over 100 billion stars. And here, Paul says, Jesus made it all. And he made all the detail. The molecules, the neutrons, the protons. He made the 75,000 miles of blood vessels in your body that carry blood to over 60 60 trillion cells. As the Bupa advert says, you're amazing. And then there's the intricacy of the design. Sir James Jeans, the famous British astronomer, once said, the universe appears to have been designed by a pure mathematician. We're told that the tilt of the earth at a 23 degree angle produces our seasons. Experts tell us that if the angle were different, vapours from the oceans would move north and south and the earth would gradually be encased by an ice cap. It has to be exactly 23 degrees to work. And you ever, ever thought of this? When Jesus created the woodpecker, he made it the, the tiny sponge-like pad between the bill and the head so that when the woodpecker drills a hole in a tree, he doesn't knock himself out. 
Now that may not be very important to you, but I tell you it's very important to the woodpecker. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Visible and invisible, you see, all the stuff that we can see with our eyes and all the things we can't, heaven and angels and spiritual powers and rulers and authorities, Jesus created the lot. And you see why that is so important for the Colossian Christians to hear. The deceivers were saying, Jesus, yeah, he's a great start, he's fine, but they wanted to go further, further to experience God. They needed to go where? Do you remember chapter 2, verse 18? To angels, to the rulers and powers in the heavenly realms. And Paul says here, why worship the angels when you know the one who made the angels? That's the point. There's nowhere else to go when you know Jesus. And isn't this all so reassuring this week? Dave knew Jesus. Let me tell you something even more assuring. Jesus knows Dave intimately. Jesus created him, knit him together in his mother's womb. Jesus knew every word before he even spoke it, every thought that ever went through his mind, Jesus knew everything about him. So why go anywhere else? Or to anyone else? Jesus is the firstborn. He will inherit everything because he made everything. And secondly, do you see in verse 16, he will inherit everything because of those two words at the end of verse 16, for him. See, all things were created by him and for him. Those are amazing, those two words. They're two little words. There's only six letters that makes up those two words. But let me tell you, those two words are massive. Those two little words for him answer some of the biggest and most profound questions of life. Questions that again have come to us with renewed force after the events of this week, haven't they? Haven't you asked yourself big questions this week? Of course you have. We don't have all the answers. We probably don't have many answers, but when you ask the big questions of life, those two words answer them. Why are we here? Where's it all going? What's the purpose of life? Do you see how those two words answer those big questions of life? Why are we here? For him. For Jesus. Come to him and life makes sense. Dave knew that. Where's it all going? To be inherited by Jesus. That's the conclusion of the universe. That's where everything is heading. Everything's going to be his one day. What's the point of life? To be involved with Jesus. See, with Jesus, that's where you'll find meaning in life. That's where you will feel at ease with yourself and happy in your own skin because you were made for him. So when you come to him, you suddenly think, this is what life's about. Dave knew that. See, it's what Jesus himself said. He said, I am the light of the world. You ever had that experience where, where you've been perplexed about something and then someone has said something and it's as if the lights have been switched on. Maybe, you know, university lectures and you just don't get it and then someone just explained it. And go, I get that now. 
the light's been switched on. Or somebody comes alongside, you've got a personal decision you're not sure about, and somebody says something, and it just seems to shed light on the difficult decisions, on the difficult issues of life. Do you ever have that experience? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Have these big questions of life come to me? But actually, Jesus isn't just saying, come to me and I'll make sense of life. Come to me, I'll shed light on the meaning of the world. He does do that, but he's saying more. He says, come to me because I am the light of the world. I am the meaning of the world. That's why you come to me, he says. Everything was made by him and for him. Yeah, you've had the big questions of life come flooding into your mind through the events of this week. I wouldn't be at all surprised if you have. What better place to go then than to the meaning of life himself? And so do you see again why the the teaching of the deceivers in Colossae was so dangerous? Why go anywhere else or to anything else when you have Jesus? When you have Jesus, you have everything. Jesus isn't just like the the way you get into the Christian life. He isn't just the beginning of the Christian life. He is the, the, the totality, not just of the Christian life, but of life the universe and everything. And not only do you have everything when you have Jesus, but Paul says you can't live without Jesus. Look at verse 17. He, Jesus, is before all things and in him all things hold together. It's years ago now, I was uh, talking to a friend of mine when I used to work in the newspaper business. His name uh, uh, was Steve, or it still is Steve. Um, And... um, uh, Steve, I, I became Steve's best man, actually. Uh, Steve and I were good friends. And uh, he, um, uh, he, he said this to me when we were talking about Jesus uh, one, one day. He said, I've lived life without Jesus all my life. I can live without him now. You know, no one had ever said that to me before. I wasn't quite sure how to answer. But I thought since then, I know how I'll answer that. And people have said things similarly since then. Same sort of thing. And so now when someone says, I've lived life without Jesus all my life and I can live without him now, I say something like this. Well, yes, you can live without without Jesus perfectly well now, but you can't live without him in eternity. But you see, as I've studied this passage this week, I've realised that's not the complete answer. In verse 17, Paul says Jesus not only made everything, he sustains everything, continues to sustain everything. He holds everything together. The real answer is this. No one can actually live without Jesus. Not actually. It's interesting listening to the way people speak about nature as if it has a mind of its own. So after a huge storm, the weather forecasters will talk of the force of nature. When looking at the detail and intricacies of the world, some might speak of mother nature. Scientists often speak of the laws of nature. People speak as if the universe governs itself, as if it's been wound up And off it goes. As if it has its own laws, gravity, magnetism, our body's metabolism, that sort of stuff. Paul says, no. The universe is not governed by some abstract law of nature. Were Jesus to withdraw from his universe, the universe would collapse. Verse 17, in him all things hold together. Which is why when our society pulls away from Jesus, we end up in such a mess. Let me ask you this week, how big is your understanding of Jesus? 
Jesus is not just the beginning of our faith before we go on to other things. He is the beginning and the end. We've sung it already, the Alpha and the Omega. The A to Z. Sometimes in Bible study, people ask, what's the relevance of this for Monday morning? It's not a bad question, as long as Monday morning doesn't become the ultimate test of significance. But often that's the way people test whether you've done a good Bible study. What's the, what's the point of this for Monday morning? What difference is this going to make to us Monday morning? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question. What value is this for Monday morning? This tells us the only reason there is a Monday morning is because of Jesus. This tells us there's, no, there, there's, some, there's only somewhere to work because of Jesus. Are you getting the point? Of how big, how big is your understanding of Jesus? And why would you want to go anywhere else other than Jesus? Oh, you might say, what else is there to say, having said verses 15 to 17? It would be a good place to end, wouldn't it? After all that's been said, what more can be said? Jesus is everything. Jesus was before everything. He made everything. He sustains everything. He owns everything. He will inherit everything. Surely that is enough to convince the Colossians that there is nowhere else to go other than Jesus. But surprisingly, Paul isn't finished. See, if his first point is the supremacy of Christ in creation, the second point, and it is much briefer, is this. The supremacy of Christ in redemption. See how Paul goes on, verse 18. He is the head, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, for God was pleased to have all his fullness in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, what is the point of writing more when you've just said Jesus is everything? Well, while Jesus is supreme over everything, everything is not as it should be. We live in a fallen world. Boy, do we know the pain of that this week. You see, after everything was made by Jesus, a human catastrophe occurred. Mankind turns its back on Jesus. Astonishingly, we ignore the one who made everything and owns everything and sustains everything. Isn't that amazing? I think back to a time when I was 19. I had an an exciting job in the newspaper industry. I was uh, busy. It was a busy and demanding job. I was often working long hours and into the evenings, but I loved it. I was playing a lot of sport as well. Uh, Football and badminton mainly. That took up a lot of my weekends and other evenings. I had a busy social life. Used to play in a band, actually. Wasn't very good, but used to do it. All that meant that although I lived at home, I spent little time with my parents but I continued to put my washing in the laundry basket. I ate the meals that my mum cooked. I enjoyed the fact that the house was always immaculately clean and tidy. I used their telephone and watched their television. And one day as I was breezing through the house, my mum said to me, Paul, you treat this house like a hotel. I know your mum said it to you as well, hasn't she? (laughs) And you know she was right. I enjoyed everything about living in my parents' home, but I spent next to no time with them. And that's exactly what we do with Jesus. We take all the good things in his world, but largely ignore him. And you know, relationships don't, su- don't survive that sort of approach. If I hadn't changed, my relationship with my mum and dad would have been disastrous. Live like that with God and you find yourself alienated from God. That's what Paul says. You'll see it there in verse 21. 
once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. Those are strong words, alienated, enemies. It's so much worse than treating your parents' house like a hotel. To ignore God makes us his enemy and that is a terrible position to be in. See, like the friend who said to me, I've lived life uh, without all my life without Jesus, I can live without him now. Believe this, while you may be quite happy living life without Jesus perfectly well now, you cannot live without him in eternity. Tragically this week, we have seen that we just don't know when we are going to be hurled into eternity. And to stand before Almighty God as his enemy is a fate worse than death. And I say that with, with great caution today. That's what Paul is writing about here. Jesus is not only the one who made everything, but he is also the one who brought everything back to God. See verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile to himself, God, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Being put right, being put in the right with God is only possible because of Jesus, because, verse 20, of Jesus' death, his blood shed on the cross. That's how we can make our peace with God. I've seen this week the astonishing difference it makes when we are put in the right with God through Jesus. Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross and because of that, Dave Hopkinson has been reconciled to God. That makes the world of difference today. And because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, so, verse 18, Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. See, end of verse 18, he is supreme over everything, including death. Isn't that wonderful to know? Verse 18, Jesus is the firstborn, there's the word again, from among the dead. He will inherit all those who have died in him. Dave and all Christians who've gone before us and who, all who will die after us will be inherited by Jesus as his special possession. Isn't that wonderful to know? And so at the end of this most heartbreaking week, have we got it? I know the Hopkinson family have got it. I've seen it. Have the rest of us got it? Jesus is everything. Now in a moment we're going to sing, but um, before we do, I, I want to say that events like this I think, open us up to spiritual realities in a way that other things don't. We never believe that death is going to happen to us. I'm 45 and I still don't believe it. Siegfried Sassoon said this, at the age of 22 I believe myself to be inextinguishable. Do you know that feeling? It's never going to happen to me. But this week, we've become aware of the reality of death. 
But I want to say to you, that, is not gonna, that feeling is not going to last forever. I'll tell you what happens. In a few months' time, while um, the Hopkinson family will never be the same again, and many of us will never be quite the same again, in a few months' time, we will go on doing life the way we always have. And so we have been opened up at the moment to these spiritual realities. We are open to them in a way that we will not normally be because of this awful event. And so I want to say to you, now's the time if you haven't sorted it out with God. Now is the time. Let's pray together.